Welcome to the Ab Astra podcast. Today we have as researcher uh, Jeffrey Kotick once again. Uh, thank you and welcome once more uh, to our, to our uh, podcast. Um, Jeffrey is a researcher at the British Columbia University, a postdoctoral researcher, and he specializes in the study of astrology in the Far East context, so China, Japan, and surrounding regions. Uh, Today, in particular, we're going to talk about uh, a topic that I like a lot because my formation is art history, which is iconography. So how are astrological symbols, representations and concepts expressed visually through art? Uh, and in the Far East, so I'm quite eager to hear a little bit about this. Well, welcome, Jeffrey. Well, thank you very much for having me on the uh, podcast again. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. So yeah, as you said, I've been researching astrological iconography in East Asia. Mm -hmm. And as we'll see today, a lot of this is uh, connected with India as well as the Indo-Iranian world, so Inner and Central Asia. Mm -hmm. And there's also links between what we see in the Islamicate world and what we see in East Asia. So it's a very complex history, the history of astrological iconography. Because the zodiac signs, as we know them today, were formulated in Mesopotamia around the year 500 BCE, so Taurus, Aries, and so on. And then um, in the subsequent centuries, we see the zodiac signs appear in the Hellenistic world. And then later on, we also see them in India, in Iran, and then the Buddhists also transmit them to China and then later on into Japan. So the zodiac signs in particular become sort of a universal iconography that um, everybody adopted in different religious traditions and different languages and cultures. And the integrity of this iconography is very interesting in that it remains stable for the most part over the many, many centuries. So, you know, Aries always remains a ram. And in particular, he's often depicted as a white ram and so on. So this sort of iconography, it's, it's universal. And we can appreciate also the links that this iconography gives us when we're investigating cross-cultural interactions. And so what I'm going to show you today on the PowerPoint presentation, here we go. So this is Islamicate and Chinese astral iconography. And I have proposed that there's an Indo-Iranian connection uh, between these icons. Um, to give you some historical background, the astral pantheon, which includes the lunar mansions, the zodiac signs, and also the planets, was introduced into China through Buddhism. And one of the key texts and the um, architects of this transmission was called uh, Shubhakara Simha. So he was a, an Indian monk who um, was in India for a few decades. Uh, and then he translated a certain text called the Vairochana Abhisam Bodhi in um, 724 with the monk Yixing. And we see here an illustration of uh, what he looked like, according to a Chinese artist. And this text that he uh, transmitted, it's, it's a very practical oriented text. So you have to produce a mandala. So this illustrated uh, cosmology of various deities. And they're mostly Buddhist deities. So you can see in the middle that there's different Buddha images surrounded by bodhisattvas. But on the outer ring, 
the outer, outer ring of the mandala, we see um, various uh, so-called worldly gods, which includes also the zodiac signs, the planets, mm -hmm. and then other deities from the Indian pantheon, such as Ganesh, um, otherwise known as Vinayaka or Ganapati, Indra, Brahma, and these various other figures. And what I was really fascinated by is the fact that we have the planetary deities and also the zodiac signs in this uh, iconography. And one of the principal documents that we have in reconstructing uh, the iconography that was transmitted to China from India is the Taizou Zuzo, which is a, it's, it's nominally a Japanese document. And what it does is it uh, preserves all the different drawings that are included within the mandala. And this uh, is a reproduction of an original copy that was brought to Japan from China in the mid-9th century. And this iconography is said to go back to Shubakara Simha's time directly. So what we're looking at is a Japanese copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, and so it's a very complex history, but the integrity of the icon seems to remain stable. And even though it was clearly a, uh, a Chinese artist who um, initially produced these, you can see the very strong Indian elements as well. So on the top right, we see Aries, we can recognize Taurus, Cancer the Crab. On the bottom left, we have, you know, the, the figure with the bow and arrow, yeah. and he has the bottom of a horse, and that's very clearly an Indian interpretation of a centaur, Sagittarius. Exactly, yeah. And then in the bottom left, what we see is this fish-like figure. Yeah. Can you guess yeah. what that is? Oh, I, I've seen by the name, Bakara, yes. <laughs> the Capricorn, right, so yeah. It, it's Capricorn. <laughs> yeah. And so in, in Mesopotamia, originally, uh, Capricorn is understood as a fish goat. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then this was also reproduced in Egypt. And so we can see the Egyptian icon on the mm -hmm. bottom right. And then on the bottom left is the Mesopotamian icon. Yes. And what the Indians understood Makara as was probably a dolphin. Okay. And so when, when um, it seems Shubakara Simha was describing what a dolphin looks like to the Chinese artist, this, is, was, this was the result. So it's supposed to be a bald-nosed dolphin. So the Chinese ended up understanding Capricorn as a giant fish. And then in later texts, they just described describe Capricorn as a giant fish. And they kept on calling it Makara. They used the Sanskrit term Mochie in, in, in modern Chinese, which is a transliteration of maka, Makara. Okay. Mm. Interesting. Uh, and then we we also have the planets depicted in here. So we have mm -hmm. uh, the moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, and so on. But one thing you notice about the uh, the planets, especially Venus, Jupiter, Mercury, and Mars, is that you don't have um, gender being expressed in this sort of iconography. Mm -hmm. So in ancient India, the planets were um, universally male. Uh, even Venus, Venus is not a female. And the, 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 the visual representations here correspond a lot to what we see in texts like the Agni Purana. So it's a Hindu text. It's a very major Hindu text, the Agni Purana. And we also have Rahu and Ketu, which is normally Rahu is the ascending node of the moon. And then in later Indian astronomy and astrology, Ketu uh, is the descending node of the moon, the south node. But in the original Indian conception, Ketu means banner mm. or signal. And it represents comets. So the comets okay. were considered one of the Navagraha, one of the, what we not, we translate Graha as planet. And Graha means to grasp something. So the grasper. Mm -hmm. And we can also recognize the moon. The moon is in, in, in a chariot uh, pulled by uh, geese. Mm -hmm. 
and you can see the rabbit the sitting rabbit atop the crescent. Exactly. So there's the perception of the rabbit in the moon. So this mm -hmm. is this is quite recognizable, um, even to modern eyes. And then Rahu is a decapitated head with, and because he, he lost his body. There's various myths that explain this, but mm -hmm. he's the he's the eclipse deity. So he consumes the moon. He grabs grasps onto it, and consumes the moon and the sun during eclipses. Yeah. So this is quite recognizable. Yes, and even the other planets, the attributes are uh, the, the spear for Mars, for example. I think it's mo most recognizable for for Western. Uh, precisely, precisely. Yeah. And now what's yeah. interesting too is that the Indians preserved um, the uh, Indo-European myth of the sun chariot as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So Aditya or Surya rides in a chariot pulled by horses, and that should remind us of Helios. Uh, yes. the, tit the titan of the sun in uh, Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. And we also have like the sun chariot in Indo-European uh, history or um, in, in Indo-European myths uh, throughout throughout the world, yes. um, even in, in prehistorical times as well. Yes. Here it's interesting, he's being pulled by seven, uh, seven right. horses. I'm not sure if that's constant in the whole iconography. If I recall correctly, most representations of Helios, he's, he has four horses. Uh, it 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 it, it, cha it changes according to the time period an artist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if this is consistent through all sources. Uh, yeah. I'll have to count count them in the future. Exactly. So see if it's meaningful. If it's just it's just a, uh, a way of representing for each other. Right. Yes. Uh, we also have the lunar mansions, the nakshatras, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. as you can see here, that they're all depicted in sort of um, traditional Indian. Uh, garments sitting atop lotuses mm -hmm. and here they, they don't have any sort of identifying markers that would associate them with specific deities mm -hmm. so at this point these are probably the original uh, stellar lunar mansions the, mm -hmm. and and so in ancient India and the nakshatras the lunar mansions are indigenous to India because you don't have them in Mesopotamia uh, the Chinese also have a concept of lunar mansions, but they're actually in practice different from the Indian nakshatras because the definitions mm -hmm. that are given in, in Indian literature, it changes over time, but it's never identical to the Chinese model. So the Chinese and the Indians both developed this concept of lunar, lunar stations or lunar mansions mm -hmm. independently of one another. And in ancient Buddhist literature too, they treat the lunar mansions as deities. So they deified the lunar mansions, and this is why they also appear in the, the mandala. Uh, Rahu and Ketu, uh, going back to them, so in the Shiva Dharma Shastra, which has uh, been translated by Peter Bishop, it's interesting here, it says that Ketu is shaped like smoke, and he's stationed in the northeastern direction, highly frightening with eyes that are round and very extensive, may he having the color of straw smoke, removing injury from the planets, with terrible fangs and gaping mouth, bring about victory for me. And so that's uh, in, in the uh, document I'm showing you, Ketu is the one on the right. So he's appearing from smoke. So yeah. I found it quite remarkable that this uh, Hindu text, the Shiva Dharma Shastra, which is probably 6th century, maybe 7th century at the latest, mm -hmm. gives a description which lar largely corresponds to what we see in the early Chinese iconographical record. Mm -hmm. And so there's so we, we, we can compare what we see in the Buddhist literature and the Buddhist artwork very closely with what we see in the Sanskrit Hindu literature. And this is, is, this is an important way of um, carrying out such studies of iconography, I feel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then moving on into, uh, into later Chinese depictions here, we have, this is Tejaprabha Buddha, so-called Tejaprabha Buddha, and he's surrounded by five figures. 
And if you were to read the Chinese script, it says it's he's surrounded by the five planets. Mm -hmm. And this is interesting because these figures are not part of any sort of ancient Chinese tradition. The Chinese didn't have this idea of associating the planets, for example, with humanoid figures. They didn't have this um, um, anthropomorphic representation of the planets because in Chinese metaphysics and Chinese traditional understanding, the planets are associated with elements. So mm -hmm. Venus is the metal star, Jupiter is the wood star. Mm -hmm. And so they have a sort of material uh, cosmology for the planets originally. Now they could signal mm -hmm. things in heaven, they signal things like celestial omens and so on, but they mm -hmm. weren't depicted as deities. Okay. But what's also interesting is that we see this iconography appear um, early, early in um, approximately the ninth century, early ninth century, late eighth century. And this mm -hmm. painting here is from uh, the final years of the ninth century. And it's a very famous painting from the British Museum. And we're going to explore these icons and look at each of the planets. Um, so here's another um, document from around the same time. And it, and it gives the names for each of these figures. So we can see that Saturn is, a, is an old bearded man riding a bull. Mercury is a female figure with the, the um, with a brush and a piece of paper. And that should remind us of Hermes and Thoth, the scribal gods in the Hellenistic world. Exactly. So Mercury is a scribe. Venus plays a lute. Mm -hmm. So a musician, stringed instruments, mm -hmm. yes. joy, pleasure. Uh, Mars, of course, is a warrior with the bow, the spear. He, he's holding yeah. what appears to be a dart or an arrow. Mm -hmm. We see again the sun with, um, being pulled by horses. Uh, Jupiter is is wearing a pig's hat and he's holding flowers, and no, that that that's that's somewhat anomalous in the iconographical um, iconographical yeah. record historically, but nonetheless you can start recognizing these figures just looking at them. Yeah, exactly. But also when we look at the textual records too in the Chinese, what we see is that starting around the mid eighth century, sometimes the planets are refer to using Sogdian names in Chinese transliteration. Mm -hmm. So on the far right, we see the Chinese characters and we see what they correspond to in the Sogdian. And we can actually see that they correspond um, quite closely. And the Sogdian names are transcriptions of what they were in Middle Persian. Okay. So the, you know, the, the god like Ahura Mazda is naturally associated with Jupiter because Jupiter mm -hmm is the, the chief god um, among uh, the, the, the planetary deities, and Anahid, Kewan, and so on. It's very interesting how we, we suddenly see this appear around the mid-8th century. And so we can start um, linking the icons with what we see in the textual record at the same time. So it's very important that we link the icons with what we see in the texts available to us as well, because then things start to make sense. And it also hints at the origin of these icons. So they're not, these icons are not necessarily being associated with Sanskrit names. They're yeah. being associated with Iranian names, which hints at an Iranian source. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if we look at some of the planetary figures individually, on, on the left here, we have um, Saturn on the far left, and he's the old man in the skirt, hunched over, and he's holding a staff. And on the right is, we have the icon of um, Libra, and mm -hmm. it's, it's Saturn holding... A scale yeah and this this is in the japanese version of the mandala that i showed you mm. and it's what's interesting is that uh this icon of saturn corresponds to what we see in the wonders of creation uh, which is a 13th century document written in arabic 
that has all sorts of sections on different um, parts of the world and, and lore and nature. And there's also several pages that deal with the planets. And the depiction of Saturn there is very similar to what we see in the Chinese or some versions of the Chinese. And although he's sitting down in the chair, my interpretation is that he, he was originally supposed to be hunched over. Okay. And he's, he's holding what appears to be, I guess, what is it? A pickaxe, mm -hmm. a pickaxe or some sort of hammer. But um, that should also remind us of Kronos who um, carries the sickle. Yeah, exactly. And if we start comparing what we see in the iconographical record mm -hmm. from uh, the Hellenistic world, it all becomes very apparent. Yeah. So what we see on the far left is uh, a stone of which is usually understood to be uh, Kronos. Mm -hmm. um, so Saturn, he's reaping the wheat and he, he's hunched over and he has the sickle with yeah. which he um, collects the wheat, harvests the wheat. Mm -hmm. And on, on the top here, we also have another image from... Uh, the Greco-Egyptian period, uh, similarly, where you have him um, harvesting the wheat. Yeah, yeah. And so you can you can see here that the the iconography has a lot of similarities. And what that tells me is that the the original Greco-Egyptian icon of Kronos was likely transmitted through an Iranian medium into China, and that same sort of heritage is likely also the origin of what we see in the uh, Arabic manuscript. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's quite evident. It's it's the same theme right. being interpreted then with probably slight adjustments of cultural context, but it is the same image. But you can also see like the skirt, right? So you have yeah. the, the skirt in the in, mm -hmm. in the Chinese icon. It's very similar to what you see in the Hellenistic, Greco-Egyptian yeah. Hellenistic icon. Exactly. And although the, the icon also matures over time, so this this is um, the, from the Kuyo Hiraku, which is from the ninth century, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's a Japanese document. But my interpretation, my conclusion is that this document was originally Chinese, probably from the ninth century. Mm -hmm. And this is how they understood Saturn after a sort of process of naturalization of the iconography. So Saturn in East Asia is associated with the bull, and that's that's typically anomalous now the initial interpretation is you would associate the bull with agriculture and associate saturn with agriculture mm -hmm. but if you look at parker's study of the planets in egyptian uh, in, in egyptian inscriptions uh, horus the bull is the name for saturn so i'm not sure if you can you can interpret the planetary association with uh, the animal going as far back as the uh, late um, Hellenistic period, the Ptolemaic Hellenistic period, but it's it's one possibility in this interpretation. Yes. Yes. And so in the Chinese and the Japanese, uh, Saturn is interpreted, he's described as a Brahmin. Mm -hmm. So you have different interpretations of what a Brahmin ought to look like in mm -hmm. the uh, East Asian eyes. And so here, here he has sort of um, larger facial features, a big nose, wider mm -hmm. eyes. And so the artist who produced this, uh, this was his interpretation of a Brahmin. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and then you also have these very elegant icons like this, which were produced um, starting in the Song Dynasty, so around the 10th, 11th century. And what's interesting is that this icon in particular preserves the symbol of the, um, the not the scythe, but the sickle. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we look at the Saturnine sigils in the Gaeta Hakim and the Picatrix, you can actually see how the sigil, mm -hmm. which eventually becomes our modern symbol for Saturn, mm -hmm. is um, reproduced 
um, throughout history. And mm -hmm. then that seems to be reproduced in this icon on the head of his exactly. staff. Yeah. So, so probably a connection there. And do they give a, an explanation uh, with the bull? Because it, it the bull appears here appears in the head as as a complementary uh, symbol. But we have seen him riding a bull, right? So in in some in some cases the text describes Saturn as riding a bull or mm -hmm. wearing a bull's cap. And the other planets, as we'll see, have similar associations okay. as well. Okay. So this this very elegant icon, which is a Japanese reproduction of a Chinese painting, um, shows Saturn with his uh, his full regalia, and again he's a bearded old old man, and he's holding a uh, a book in one hand, slightly curved, yeah, slightly curved because <laughs> he's he's hunched over. Yeah. So um, also the etymology is interesting too, because the Chi the the Chinese word. Uh, which in modern Chinese it would be pronounced Qihuan, mm -hmm. was pronounced something like Kehuan in Middle Chinese. And that corresponds to Sogdian Kewan from the equivalent Persian Kewan. Now, what's interesting is that the old Persian um, Kai, Kaivanu is mm -hmm. from the Akkadian Kayamanu. Mm -hmm. So effectively, the Chinese transcription of the Sogdian mm -hmm. word for Saturn is effectively an Akkadian loanword in Middle Chinese, except mm -hmm. it's it's a bit descended, maybe two or three generations. So this is one example of an um, an Akkadian loanword in Middle Chinese, mm -hmm. and it got through that through the Iranian intermediary. Mm -hmm. And what's also fascinating about that is that um, in um, Mesopotamia they didn't associate Saturn with a specific deity. So Jupiter was associated with Marduk and so forth. But in, in the case of Saturn, he was associated with a technical term. So um, my understanding of Kayamanu, according to the literature I've read, is that it's a technical term, meaning the, the steady or the permanent. Mm -hmm. And then that just became the name of the planet. And then this ends up in, in Sogdian and then in Chinese. Yeah, fabulous. And this is from uh, the uh, Tangut Kingdom. So the Tangut Kingdom existed in what's now Western China, sandwiched between Tibet and China for a few centuries from, I guess, what, the 10th century to about the 13th, 14th century. Uh, the, the Mongols mostly destroyed that civilization. And, but they preserved a lot of material from China. And because it's, it's, um, the landscape is mostly desert, uh, the painting, a lot of paintings were preserved at Karakoto, and there's they they had this sort of um, fascination with the planets and worshiping them, and they very deeply believed in astrology. So they also practiced various magical rituals to uh, ward off the evil influences of the planets. Now, what's interesting here is that Saturn is depicted having red hair. Yeah, and light, uh, light and red hair. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, so he has a fair he has he has a fair complexion and he has red hair. And my interpretation of that is that he might actually um, be based on a, an image of a, of a Brahmin from North India or Kashmir. Hmm. Because if you go into what's now um, like Kashmir and Pakistan and so on, you can see people who had descended from the Tocharians and so on. And you do actually see people hmm. with blonde and red hair okay. in that region of the world. So that's just my speculation, but yeah, <laughs> well, it probably meant something uh, that right. they would associate it with Saturn, some strangeness, foreignness, perhaps. I, uh, yeah, right. On their dignity, yeah, that's interesting. And yeah. we have, yeah. if we compare the icon of Libra 
So on the left, we have a Libra in the Kitab al-Bulhan from the 14th mm -hmm. century. And it's very similar. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, what the both icons is they're grasping their abdomens. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they're doing that is because Libra is associated with that area of the body in the zodiacal man. The normal, mm -hmm. So the zodiac signs are associated with different parts of the body. And there's a region ar around the abdomen that's traditionally associated with Libra. So that's why Saturn is grasping his uh, abdomen area here. So again, you see the parallels between the two. And what it does is it points out a common heritage. And my understanding, my theory would be that this common heritage is likely Iranian. But some scholars have challenged me on this and they said, well, can you point to a Sasanian Iranian example of Saturn like this? But the problem is that there's no extent definitive Sasanian representations of the planets. One of the reasons for this is that they... The Zoroastrians understood the planets as demons. Mm. And even though they named the planets after their major pantheon figures like Ahura Mazda and so on, they didn't depict the planets um, for various reasons, or at least they didn't do it um, very widely as far as we know. Yes. yes. But that be, I, but the counter argument to that is that, well, it doesn't have to be Sasanian Persian. It could have been originally something that Sogdians had come up with. Mm -hmm. So, it, I mean, we, we have such a paucity of resources from the Sasanian period that it's hard to um, identify precisely where these icons are coming from. But they're not, I don't think they're Indian because there's, there's too many of these features that you can connect with the, with the Hellenistic world. Mm -hmm. And the earlier ancient Indian icons don't look anything like this at all. So my theory is that there's an Iranian heritage behind these. Uh, we also have like other examples from like, uh, this is from Al-Nashiri. And here we have, we start seeing the, um, the planets with multiple arms, which is also what we see in East Asia in the case of Mars. And so we can, we can, we can see the common features uh, e even between these manuscripts. Uh, moving on to Mars. So on the left, we have the, uh, the Japanese version of Mars in the Kuyo Hiryaku. And so he has four arms and he's associated with a donkey which is interesting. My theory behind that is that in, in, in uh, Greco-Egyptian magic, the god uh, Seth is associated with donkeys and different magical rituals are, are carried out using various body parts of donkeys. Mm. And given that Seth is a very wrathful sort of uh, deity, it would make sense in a sort of occult tradition to associate him with Mars, oh, although that's yeah. not definitive. It's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's a tentative theory at the moment. Because yeah. the other thing is that the 12 animals of the, the Chinese system, you know, we call it the Chinese mm -hmm. Zodiac, but that's not, that's a misnomer. We shouldn't actually call it a Zodiac because yeah. it's not a Zodiac. Mm -hmm. the, the 12 animals don't include a donkey. So you can't say that it's, it's a Chinese element. It appears to be a foreign element. In any case, so the wonders of creation, you can see again, it's a warrior figure and they're both colored red. Because Mars is the red planet. Yeah, yeah. Um, Al-Nasiri also depicts Mars with uh, four arms. Mm -hmm. And that's also what we see in the Chinese tradition. Uh, what they're holding differs. So, yeah. I mean, the, the common feature here is the sword. But in Al-Nasiri, he has the decapitated head, yeah, yeah. the staff, and what appears to be some sort of cat, like a leopard or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's but never, nonetheless, there's very clear parallels between uh, the icons. Yes, yes, Venus is the strongest uh, candidate for pointing out the parallels because in, in almost all of the 
Arabic and uh, Persian depictions from the medieval period, Venus is always playing a lute. And that's also what you see amongst uh, most of the icons in East Asia after the 8th century is Venus is, 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 uh, is a female playing a lute. Mm-hmm. And in texts like the Picatrix, Venus is associated with the production of stringed instruments. So that's mm-hmm. another um, kind of avenue that we can explore when we're looking at this iconography yeah. is magical literature. Because a magical literature like the Picatrix is astrological. It's entirely mm-hmm. astrological yeah, exactly. in, its, in, in its practice. So we can look at that and draw these parallels as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the, I think it kept most, almost all traditions uh, an association of, with music in one way or another. Right, is, right. Um, yeah. And then if we com- if we compare um, the Chinese and the Arabic as well as the Japanese and the Tangut, it's very clear that um, Venus is the lute player. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of a pan-Eurasian heritage that we mm-hmm. see. And you can mm-hmm. you could um, link because Picatrix was translated into Latin, uh, so you could probably investigate uh, medieval European interpretations of Venus as well and find similar mm-hmm. parallels. Yes, yes, certainly. Al Nasiri, uh, my interpretation oh. here is that although there's no beard, that's probably depicting a young man, mm-hmm. um, be- because in the uh, Middle Eastern uh, depictions of the planets, I generally see mostly males. Um, so I'm not sure if, if Venus here is female or if it's a young man because of the lack of a beard. Yeah. But not, nonetheless, it's um, Venus here is playing the, the guitar. Yeah, and with the flute and uh, uh, I don't know what's the name in English, um, the instrument, the circular instrument here. Right. What's that called? Um, I forget too. Okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a musician. <laughs> And so this is also the painting from the late 9th century from Yuen mm-hmm. Wang. Very elegant. Yeah. And so, Ve- yeah, so Venus is associated with, well, in this case, that's a phoenix on top of her head. Mm. But it, as we'll see in other depictions, she can be associated with a chicken or a hen okay. because of the interpretation of the character G, mm. so, which can just mean broadly birds or fowl. But okay. um, Mercury, um, always depicted as the scribe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mercury in East Asia is female, and the explanation behind that is forthcoming. I can't, ex- I can't explain that um, one way or the other. It could be because they, um, Mercury, Mercury has uh, a sort of gender-neutral context in yeah. astrological practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you look at the Hellenistic age, Hermes is always male. Yes. And Thoth also was male. So yes. it's, it's interesting yes. how, how Mercury becomes female in East Asia. Yeah, and at the same time, they always considered um, the, the planets inferior to the sun, which are usually considered nocturnal and though tendentially female, right. while the superiors are tendentially male. So probably it could be that information coming into the image uh, by making all Venus, Mercury and the Moon all represented by female figures. I don't know. And, and, and Mercury in East Asia is associated with a monkey. And mm. that's interesting because Hermes Thoth, one of the avatars of Thoth mm-hmm. in Egypt is the baboon. Yeah. So he's yeah. the baboon scribe. Yeah. And so we could po- possibly link what we see in late antiquity in the Hellenistic world mm-hmm. with this sort of icon as well. The problem is that you don't find Mercury and the monkey in the um, Persian or the Islamicate materials, or the Arabic mm. materials. So the, the animal associations, it's debatable whether they're a Chinese innovation 
on top of this iconography or if it was brought in um, yeah. from abroad. Oh, and couldn't it be, I'm not sure, I'm not just putting a, an hypothesis here, perhaps something which is textual and suddenly is incorporated in the iconography. That's, that's also a possibility too. Uh, yeah. I, I tend to favor interpretation that the animal associations are from abroad because mm -hmm. the magical manuals in the Taoist canon, which describe the planetary deities and their animal associations, the magic that we find there is not Chinese in origin and it's not mm -hmm. Buddhist either. And because you have Sogdi and loan words incorporated into it, my interpretation is that this is probably a translation from Persian or from Sogdian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In which case, the animal associations too probably came um, through um, an Iranian intermediary. Yeah, yeah. yeah from so, that, that line. Yeah. I, I one one day perhaps we can find some illustrated manuscript from Central or Inner Asia, and it can solve all these questions for us. But at, at mm -hmm. the moment, it's forthcoming. Yeah. <laughs> and also looking at Al Nasiri here, we have mm -hmm. Mercury as the scribe, very specifically male with the beard. It's a very elegant, so she, she, she's wearing, you know, a courtly dress and the monkey is stationed atop her head. Yeah. This is probably my favorite depiction of Mercury in the world. Oh, it's It's, it's, it's just so <laughs> fabulous. And it, she's yeah. just so, ele she's so elegant and stately looking. Yes. And with the, the white and black, so there, there's a, that cool quality, which usually astrology attributes to Mercury is there. I don't know if that it would be a, a valid uh, comparison in this context, but... Uh, yeah. No, the thing is with the headdress, though. I mean, I would have to look at that very, very closely and try to determine um, what what's happening, mm -hmm. what's being depicted in her headdress. Because her mm -hmm. hair is is her braids. It seems are kind of like um, curled up on top of her head. But there's something also with the headdress. Yeah. But I'd have to probably look at it with a very fine magnifying glass to figure out what's going on there. Mm -hmm. um, Jupiter is associated with pig pigs mm -hmm. or boars in mm -hmm. East Asia, which again is not something that we find anywhere else. No. And usually he's depicted holding or holding flowers or holding a plate of flowers. Mm. And Jupiter in the wonders of creation is the judge. Mm -hmm. he's, he's a judge and he's holding a, um, usually a book. Yeah. Uh, Rahu and Ketu in, in the uh, East Asian world, uh, he initially, as I showed you before, Rahu is um, depicted as a decapitated head, but there's no snakes. <laughs> and the icon of Ketu emerging from smoke, there's no snake or serpent yeah. imagery there. But suddenly we see in the ninth century serpents appearing. Mm -hmm. um, so on the left here, we have Rahu with three heads. It looks very Indian, but the thing is, is that the snake motif is not present in the early Indian literature. Mm -hmm. They don't describe Rahu and Ketu as having any sort of snake-like qualities. Yeah. And then in the sort of mature iconography of the Song Dynasty, which was reproduced in Japan, like we see on the right, we have Ketu here as like a, as a, as a humanoid figure, and he has snakes in his hair, and he's holding a sword. And I think it's the Agni Purana which describes Ketu holding a sword. Okay. Um, and, and so, yeah. so go ahead. And there's no idea of the dragon head that... Uh, doesn't well, what's, what's, what's interesting is that they say that he's the head of the eclipse deity, mm -hmm. Rahu, and Ketu is the tail of the eclipse deity. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that, that description comes only after the Iranian transmission of astrology. The Indian literature, the original Indian literature and Chinese translation, but also the earliest Indian literature we have 
that describes the planets like Shiva, Dharma, Shastra, and Agni Purana, they don't describe these snake-like features or the okay. serpentine features as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll show you something here in mm -hmm. um, this other text that we have, which is Chinese but preserved in Japan. On the left-hand side, we have Rapu, and he's um, riding a dragon. Dragon, yeah. And so in Europe and in the Middle East, Rahu, or the, the ascending and descending nodes is the head and the tail of a dragon. Mm-hmm. And that's very that's very interesting. And the Chinese also reads like the uh, eclipse deity. Mm -hmm. And this is very clearly associated. Um, these two figures are associated with eclipses. But then on the right, we have Ketu. And you can see the snakes coming out of his hair. And he has the sun and the moon in both hands. But what's interesting is that he's riding a bull. So why yeah. would... Why would Ketu the Why would Ketu be riding a bull? That's a very big question, mm -hmm. and we can actually explain that because mm -hmm. Gozir, which is the name of the dragon that mm -hmm. sprawls across the sky in the Zoroastrian mythology, one interpretation of that name, according to traditional Zoroastrian um, etymology, is um, meaning of the bull. Okay. So, although Gozir is depicted as a dragon, the actual name itself is understood as of the bull or the bull. Okay. And this is something that um, Mackenzie explains in Zoroastrian astrology in the Bundeshin, which mm -hmm. is a very important article um, um, because it's the first, first article that substantially documents Zoroastrian interpretations of astrology. Because we have very little material in Middle Persian, Pallavi, concerning astrology but this one text which is um i think the bundesh in um Bundeshin is from i think the ninth or the 10th century but it's written in middle persian um by the the late zoroastrians so when we when we look at this bull it's very clearly that that is coming from an iranian origin it's not coming from an indian origin it's also because the bull is never associated with rahu or ketu in the uh, native indian tradition mm -hmm. yes but here it's very clearly mixing like Indian motifs with Iranian motifs, which tells me that probably this iconography was coming as we expect from a Sogdian intermediary. Mm -hmm. And the Sogdians were um, ethnically um, Eastern uh, Iranian peoples who um, were merchants across the mm -hmm. Silk Road. And so they were the, the middle merchants between Persia and later the Abbasid Caliphates mm -hmm. and uh, China. And so, and they were a very sophisticated, literate society. So mm -hmm. this sort of iconography could have very easily passed through Central and Inner Asia into China. Yes. And then also incorporated um, Indian materials as well along the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we also have some other depictions here of, of, of Rahu and Ketu riding the bull, riding the dragon. We can see the sun and the moon being held in, yeah. in, in the hands. Yeah, that's why I was going to ask you that, if that was the sun and the moon, yeah. Yeah, that's the sun and the moon. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that uh, in this depiction of Ketu, it's very similar to a Buddhist depiction of the deity Mahakala. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see here, the there's six arms on, on both figure. And so, and Mahakala on the right is holding what appears to be a goat, mm -hmm. goat, and then in the other hand, he's holding um, a man mm -hmm. um, by the top of his head, holding his hair, and they're both armed. Uh, thing with Mahakala though is he's holding up an elephant skin, which is probably a reference to Vinayaka Ganapati, mm -hmm. um, which is the earlier 
version of Ganesh. Okay. And so Gan the, the, the figure of Vinayaka Gandapati was actually a creator of obstacles in the early, mm -hmm. uh, earlier traditions of um, Hinduism and Buddhism. They understood Vinayaka as a creator of obstacles, not necessarily as a benevolent deity. Mm -hmm. So okay. the Vinayaka, you, you would um, work with these wrathful deities to ensure that Vinayaka wouldn't interfere with your rituals. Mm -hmm. And so that's likely where the elephant skin is coming from. But because there's this similarity here, I'm wondering if one influenced the other. And because this is a this is a late depiction and it's coming from a Japanese source, I'm wondering if maybe the artist might have taken a bit of artistic license along the way or blended things together. And this is something that I have to think about in the future. Yeah, that's always a problem with iconography. We never know when someone decides to be a bit more creative and right. add something or subtract something that was regular in, in, in the representation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the uh, the idea of the um, the serpent mm -hmm. that seems to come from Ouroboros. Mm -hmm. So uh, in this one Taoist text which isn't illustrated it just describes um, magical rituals for the different planets. Mm -hmm. It says that you should craft a bracelet from the iron of a butcher like mm -hmm. a snake with its mouth swallowing the tail. That's not a Chinese image. That's not a Chinese icon. That's uh, Ouroboros. Mm -hmm. And we, we see that in Mithraism, and we mm -hmm. see that um, throughout the Near East. Mm -hmm. um, so my understanding is that that's probably originally an Iranian idea. and But that's very different from the depictions of the early Indian icons that are preserved in mm -hmm. the East Asian sources. So here we have... Um, Rahu on the left, the decapitated yeah. head, and Ketu emerging from smoke. Yeah. And this is based on um, a directly imported Chinese manuscript mm -hmm. or collection of manuscripts. So very clearly, this early Chinese attest attestation of an Indian icon mm -hmm. or set of icons, there's no, there's no snakes or serpents. So the argument could be made that the serpent motive is not Indian in origin, that it's probably Near Eastern in origin. Yeah. Uh, we also have other celestial figures which are depicted in East Asia, most notably uh, the lunar Apogee, mm -hmm. which became actually a planet in East Asian horoscopy. Mm -hmm. And this is long before Western astrology used the lunar Apogee as any sort of planet. So in modern yes. astrology, they use the lunar Apogee and call it Lilith. Lilith yeah, the, the, that the might be called, right, right. And Lilith actually is a, is a figure from um, Judaic mythology. Um, a very wrathful demoness. Mm -hmm. But Lilith has her origins in um, the Near East as, uh, a, as a demoness called Lil, mm -hmm. which you also find in uh, later um, Turkish and Iranian cultures, usually called Albasti. Mm -hmm. And this one Taoist um, collection of rituals and magic and so on gives this initial description of Yuibe. And so she's, she's surnamed Zhu, Vermilion, with the honorific title of Guang, in the form of a celestial human, their hair is let down over their naked body. Their mass of black hair covers the navel, red sandals. Their left hand holds the head of a drought demon. Their right hand holds a blade. They ride a jade dragon. In their modified form, they display a blue, f blue face with long fangs, a crimson gar garment and blade while driving a bear. This is not Chinese. This is not something that you would find in ancient Chinese literature because nudity also is very irregular. Mm. in um, Chinese, uh, in native Chinese traditional culture. Um, 
it's it's not something that you see very much in the art record and when it comes to yeah. um religious practices especially Taoist practices my understanding is that this would be very anomalous very anomalous so it's mm -hmm. not chinese but you can't identify this as any sort of traditional indian figure either yeah so we yeah. can also yeah. we can look at the uh, actual depictions that we mm -hmm. have preserved um some of them are preserved in um in the Tangut uh, Karakoto collection, that's uh, the State Hermitage Museum in Saint Petersburg. Mm -hmm. So on the top, on, on the left-hand side, on the top, you see a uh, topless female figure with mm -hmm. the long hair, and she has uh, a very wrathful expression on her face, mm -hmm. and that's uh, Yuibe. That's the lunar apogee, mm -hmm. and the artist, um, she's wearing, uh, seems to be wearing something. Um, below her chest so she's clothed but her, she's bare-breasted mm -hmm. and that's actually rather anomalous in east asian art to depict a female figure like this and uh and then on the right we have a standalone image of the figure and of course she's uh she's red and what's interesting is that also albasti in the iranian and turkish world is also understood as like the red one and she's okay. also associated with the color red so my my interpretation is that um, the this icon of the lunar apogee in East Asia and Tangut Shisha, the Tangut Kingdom, is probably somehow connected with uh, Albasti mm -hmm. along the way. And so here's another larger painting of Tejaprabha Buddha surrounded by mm -hmm. the planets. And mm -hmm. then in the top right, you can see a bare-breasted female figure holding yeah. a sword. And then on, on the right-hand side, that's Mars. Mm -hmm wearing the armor with yeah. a very wrathful expression. Um, here's another image. So in the top right, we can see her um, again. Mm -hmm. exactly. um, and all the different planets. On, on In the center, at the very bottom, you see the red-haired figure, that's, yes, that's Saturn. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then on the left-hand side, right-hand side, we have Rahu and Ketu yeah. with the snakes. And so, it's, it's, so this mm -hmm. sort of iconography matured, and then it really entered into... Um, the mainstream and it was transmitted from china to japan to the mm -hmm. tangut world um, the moon mm -hmm. becomes a standalone deity as, so mm -hmm. she's holding the moon yeah. in a pan yeah. um, sun and the moon in the kuyo mm hiraku -hmm. now this is interesting is because that neither of them appear to have any sort of indian traits mm -hmm. and they're, ma they're male and female um, so we have to remember that chandra in the indian context is male mm -hmm. So having a female as the moon shows me that this is probably not coming from an Indian source. Now, they're also wearing Chinese clothing, but that's because the um, East Asian artists tended to portray um, planetary deities um, wearing Chinese clothing. It's, it's also just artistic license, because yeah. if, you, if you were to ask the, the artist to draw them in elegant state clothing, they would draw them in clothing that they were familiar with. Yes, yes. Uh. So. But you also have these... Um, irregular icons which are preserved in Japan and also described in some texts in Chinese. And here we have Jupiter with the dragon head, the moon holding mm -hmm. a sword, and the sun with a dragon, not a dragon, a, a lion's head. Mm -hmm. Now the only place in the world that you find a sun deity associated um, with a lion's head or depicted with a lion's head is actually in Egypt with Ra. Mm -hmm. And that's very much a possibility um, that that um, this set of icons is coming from some sort of modified Hellenistic text yeah. that came through multiple transmissions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we, we again see um, Saturn riding the bull. Mm -hmm. We have Mars as an elephant um, mm. screeching up at the sky. <laughs> and Antonio Panaino told me that um, in Persian chess, that uh, one of the chess pieces is an elephant. And he was suggesting that there might be a connection there because also the chess pieces have astrological associations as well. So that's something I have to, I have to follow up on mm -hmm. in, in greater detail, but that's also another avenue is like looking at, looking at something as, 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 uh, as um, how do you say remote from astrology as the chessboard, that there could be some sort of connections here yes. that you could link. Yeah. Yeah, some, so, some of the yeah. some of the scholarship on this goes back to like the late 19th century. It's like Victorian English scholarship on Persian chess mm. in India. And I've looked at this a few <laughs> times and it's very fascinating. It's just that you're, you're working with such a huge volume of information from different time periods and yeah. you don't want to be um, overreacting or making any sort of premature decisions or conclusions, right? Yeah, exactly. And perhaps um, what will, will might help is expand uh, the range of materials because here we're seeing manuscripts, tapestries, that, that kind of painted material. But you can also find that in pottery, MLs, uh, dress, the embroidery, and God knows exactly where that right. might pop up and might clarify some of these strangeness or incongruities because they might coming from different means and we find that in art history all the time sometimes the models come from an unexpected source uh, right from right. a drawing it comes from from some kind of pottery decoration that exists or some kind of garment that exists that has that carries that kind of iconography mm -hmm. yeah so yeah yeah we have to look at we have to look at all of the available data yeah and some of it comes in unusual places too yes Jewelry, usually. Jewel, yeah, jewelry too. Jewelry too, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So with this set of icons too, uh, Mercury is depicted as this sort of snake-like figure with four legs. Um, I can't explain that. I mean, it's a snake, and it seems to have a beard. Yes. Mustache. Um, uh, Venus here is depicted riding the hen rather than having a phoenix on top of her head. Yeah. Uh, we also have, interestingly, the lunar mansions. A, also, there's one set of the lunar mansions. The uh, One of these scrolls is preserved in the Osaka Museum of Art. Not all of these are fully preserved, mm -hmm. but this comes from about the uh, 10th or the 11th century at the, er at, at the, at the, uh, at the earliest, it seems. These, these um, extent versions we have, mm -hmm. they, they appear around maybe the 10th century at the earliest, maybe late 9th century at the very, very earliest. And what's interesting here is that you can actually see zodiacal motifs in this set of lunar mansions. So the lunar mansions mm -hmm. are sort of um, depicted with the zodiacal motifs. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that they were, uh, their positions were linked to one another. So the, the zodiac signs relative to the lunar mansions were connected with one another. And that's just a natural extension of astrology, because if you're looking at circular tables, for example, that show you the positions of the lunar stations relative to the zodiac signs, you would naturally link the two. Okay. And then using artistic license, you would probably, you could use some sort of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, creativity to come up with these icons. And so yeah. this is very clearly Capricornian, right? Yeah, so you have... 
And sorry, that's, let me just ask you this. And we're talking about uh, sidereal reference points or not necessarily? That's a very good question. Uh, long story short, there was, <laughs> there was a point in China when they were actually calibrating the zodiac signs to the vernal equinox. Mm -hmm. So in practice, the zodiac signs they were using were semi-tropical, but mm -hmm. the positioning system in Chinese astronomy was always sidereal. Mm -hmm. So they linked, or they, they, they determined the positions of planets relative to the positions of the degrees of the lunar mansions. Mm -hmm. okay. And then they overlaid the 12 zodiac signs on top of that. Whether they kept that um, aligned with the vernal equinox for the subsequent centuries, I don't think they did. It doesn't seem that they did. The Japanese seem to have done that interestingly because they, they looked at what the original manual said and it says that the first degree of Aries is linked to the vernal equinox. So they, they kept on updating their ephemerides for this, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem that um, China followed through with this in subsequent centuries. So, but at this time too, the divergence between the sidereal and the tropical wasn't as large as it is now because we're dealing with materials from 12 or 13 centuries ago. Yeah, yeah. Right. So here you very clearly see the Capricornian uh, yeah. elements. Oh, but the one thing with this too that you notice mm -hmm. is, is that it's not a fish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, Right. So if, no, if this was, if this was inspired by some sort of Indian motif, it would probably have Makara, yeah. the, the, the fish like figure on it, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And then you can see on top of there, there's the pincers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Scorpio. The Scorpio. Yes. Um, there's a man in a pot. Mm. Aquarius. Aquarius. Yeah. <laughs> some of them don't necessarily have exact, um, um, parallels with the zodiac signs, mm -hmm. but this is it has like a cat's head and a skull. So that's uh, I think that's Aries. That's associated. That that one is uh, is uh, that lunar mansion is associated or not associated, but positioned within Aries or relative to Aries. So the horse and the bowman, Sagittarius, yeah. is very clear. So they're, they're they're depicted as Chinese figures, but you can see the zodiacal motifs that work here yeah. too. Yeah. And you see this mature depiction of the planets. So mm -hmm. Saturn on the right. And so mm -hmm. he's depicted as how a Chinese artist would have understood a Brahman. Mm -hmm. And in this case, he's probably um, a probably based on a figure from Bengal or Eastern India. Mm -hmm. And he's riding the bull. And then you have, uh, you also have Venus riding Venus. the Phoenix. Yeah. And then here, instead of um, just riding the donkey, Mars has a donkey's head. Yeah. And then Jupiter, it looks like he has like a, um, a, a dog's head or something like that. And so he's mm -hmm. riding the, the boar. Mm -hmm. And then Mercury has the scribe and she has yeah. the monkey cap on. So yeah. here you can see uh -huh. that this is a very like matured, um, mm -hmm. naturalized form of the iconography. Maybe to the point too that the artists and the astrologers had to a large extent forgotten that this was originally foreign in origin and had just become so naturalized. Yeah. Know? Something in, that they were in, used to to read. They were just used to it, see. right? Yeah, yeah. So at the point you have what you said, the maturity. So they they they're working with a shape that's already quite familiar to them, and so they they're right. more artistic in the way they represent that kind of symbol. Yeah, right. And I've also looked at the uh, some other the other depictions of the lunar mansion. So you can see on the top on the top two here, you have a depiction 
of um, from mm -hmm. De Imaginibus mm -hmm. Celestibus, which mm -hmm. is from the, the Vatican Library. And that's one of the, the lunar mansions. And you can see, obviously, there's the, the Pisces element mm -hmm. there, the Piscean element there, mm -hmm. the two fish. And then in, uh, the, in the Chinese-Japanese depiction of a lunar mansion, which is positioned very very, in, in a very similar position to the mm -hmm. Arab one, yeah. you see the figure riding the two fish. Yeah. So you can see the, the, the element of Pisces incorporated into this. <laughs> but the thing with the thing here is that you see the gestures of the hands in figure number two, and that seems to be also the case in the, um, the Indian uh, depictions which are preserved in China and Japan. So the, the Sino, Sino, Sino Indian, or even like, um, what do you say, like Indo-Sino-Japanese depictions too. Because a lot of this iconography we have from China is preserved in Japan. And then it was reproduced in Japan, usually quite faithfully. So it's hard mm -hmm. to say that it's specifically Japanese because it's a reproduction, a faithful reproduction of what was in China. Mm -hmm. And then the Chinese was often as close to a reproduction um, as they could manage of what they were looking at in the, in in the Indian materials. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that's what we have to do is we have to look at all of the different sources we have. And in, in my case, I've tried to look at the Japanese, Chinese, some Korean and the Tangut stuff mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I yeah. haven't really found too many similar things in the Tibetan art record, although I haven't, I haven't investigated that so extensively mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. No, it's huge. It's, it's, it's a huge uh, source. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, but we need to have multiple scholars who are very good yeah. at their individual fields. Like if I could work with a Tibetologist, an Indologist, yeah. and somebody who did Central Asia. Exactly. You need, you need experts in these kinds of iconography right. so they can immediately recognize main sources where probably they right. will find this kind of fiction, yes. yes. Or even just knowing where to find the materials too. Yeah, exactly. That's one of, that's one of the largest challenges. Yes. You need someone who's familiar with art, familiar with the different means of reproduction because it might find it in jewelry, as I said, or in pottery. Right. And, Sometimes it's a common motif in a certain form of art and not in others. Right. For some reason that we don't know, yeah. And then concluding, I just want to mm -hmm. show this very beautiful painting mm -hmm. from Japan, The Descent of the Nine Luminaries. Mm -hmm. And we can see here uh, the faithful Japanese reproduction of the Chinese iconography they inherited. And we mm -hmm. can see all of the familiar figures yeah. Right. So yeah. we, we, when we see the snakes, we immediately know that's Rahu or Ketu. Mm. Yeah. We have the Brahmin, or not the Brahmin, but the old man. Yeah. Old In this man. case, he's not wearing a bull's head. He's wearing a uh, a deer's head, and that might because might be because the artist linked him with uh, the Japanese uh, deity or god Jurojin, who mm. is depicted as an old man, and he's a, he's always usually mm. accompanied by deer, because okay. deer deer are long lived. And they also okay. represent uh, wisdom. So there's that sort of uh, slight modification. So instead of wearing a bull's head, he's wearing what appears to be a deer's head. Mm -hmm. But then Mercury, the scribe, she's yeah. wearing the monkey on the top. And then you have the hand yeah. on top of Venus. Yeah. And then the red dot, that's very clearly the sun. And then if you look more closely at these, you can see that the... Uh, um, the, fig the these, these images were just so well executed. And just such fine, finely preserved as well. Yes, yes. And so, 
So it's, it, Japan is just a repository of, of this sort of material. And there's a lot of things in Japan that um, they're not, it's not open to the public. It's not been um, even cataloged in a lot of cases because mm -hmm. it's pri privately owned. Yes. So this is something that in the future, I hope to be able to uh, investigate in, in closer detail, have access to more manuscripts, yes. more texts, more paintings, and hopefully more things will surface that we can study. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Yes, it, and it's. And I think what what you said it's it's quite noticeable. Is that, that there is a common line of transmission here, even if we're doubts if this comes from one source or the other. But, but we still see that the transmission of the idea coming in, and then as you said, maturing with time and getting more adapt to the cultural environment, and assuming like like the deer in this last image, assuming. Different symbol, a similar symbology or different symbology coming in through different images. That's quite interesting. And what is amazes me is that if you remove a little bit of the cultural specificity of each images, this the central idea, the core idea of what the planets represent, is still mm -hmm. there. Right, still there. Yeah, translated into a different kind of iconography, a cultural iconography, but it's still there. The idea, it, it's firmly there, which. Mm -hmm which would be logical if all of this is supported by practice, textual mm -hmm. transmission, manuals explaining the, the, the attributes of each of these elements and deities. Yeah. Now it's, well, well, thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. I mean, this yeah. is something I've been working on for a few years and I feel that it's, it's, it, it will never really be fully accomplished because there's so many questions. Yeah. And, um, Although some people have um, looked at this iconography in, in the past, they haven't necessarily closely looked at it in relation to what the textual record gives mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And the textual record also includes things that are in the Buddhist canon, the Taoist canon, also in the records of like Chinese authors who wrote prose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, with the digitization of so many Chinese, classical Chinese texts and Japanese texts, we can very easily find... Uh, references to the planets and planetary deities and we can look for specific strings of text across thousands yeah. tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of texts if need be yeah. Yeah. and so the 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 technology that's available now, now in the digitization of all of these texts it's really allowed for some amazing things yes, yes. and also the availability of the image themselves uh, right right we have more very precious things that were kept <laughs> in vaults because they were right. damaged now once they're scanned and digitized you can watch right but as i said before there's a lot of things that are in private collections in japan mm -hmm. and i hope one day i can find out about these things or network and, <laughs> and find out about them and uh well we never know these things are coming up uh, right. to the light all the time even even here that we don't have that that, that closure sometimes something completely wonderful pops right. up uh, into the light so yeah yes one thing um uh, that uh, uh, also is interesting here factor uh, and i'm now comparing to my uh, knowledge which is the western iconography of all these mm -hmm. images is that um here we are seeing um a more life tradition mm -hmm. and what do i mean by this these deities are worshipped in most of these cultures. They, 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 there's a, a development, a religious and philosophical development of what they mean to time, mm -hmm. and the images will, will most certainly reflect that. While, for example, here in the West, although we do, uh, 
there's a sort of crystallization of the, uh, to a certain extent, of the what the planets represent. So there, there's the Greek, uh, the Greco-Roman Roman iconography, or at mm -hmm. least concept that it, it's stabled. It doesn't develop. There's no mm -hmm. uh, once Christian Christianity domains. Uh, dominates the, the, the religious panorama, there's no development of those images, at least generally. Then, of course, perhaps we can find exceptions to the rule. But, uh, and while here we have something which is living and it, it's adapting to different religious uh, and cultural backgrounds, which is also uh, interesting to see. It's right, right. The same ideas being um, um, absorbed and, and reproduced by completely different philosophical contexts. Uh, yeah, so it's quite quite interesting. Well, thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure. I, so it's a, I love images uh, and art and, and this seeing this from a completely different uh, point of view, it's, it's wonderful, yes. Okay, so Jeffrey, thank you very much for this presentation. I well, hope- Thank you very much for having me. It was, yeah. it was, it was great. Um, Giving, giving all this uh, information that I know to you and uh, hope everyone enjoys it. Yes, I'll put the link to your papers because you have one or two papers on this already. Yeah, I have some papers that people can look at. Yeah, yeah so, so I'll, I'll put the link to those uh, so people can, who, whoever's interested can also read again this, uh, this material and I thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, and I hope uh, that we can uh, be here again uh, another time and, and continue this discussion or have uh, a discussion comparable to this one. Definitely. Okay, thank you yeah. so much.